Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask for your presence here as your word is preached. We ask, Lord God, that you would reveal yourself as you've always intended to through your word, that you, your revelation of yourself, would bring life, and that we would come face to face with you, the living God, and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. My grandfather, my dad's dad, uh, was a generation of Chinese that was not that uncommon to have multiple wives, and so uh, he had two wives, and, um, and my grandfather had 11 children. Now, the amazing thing about that is, is that only one of those wives bore the 11 children, which means that's pretty tough work for one person to handle. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the term polyamory. Um, people would use that word as a way to say how progressive we've become and how sexual revolution has released us from these monogamous relationships. And a, a definition of it, I mean, polyamory, you can hear the words many loves, is, is really a simple definition. It's having more than one romantic partner honestly. So not cheating on people, like to have open relationships, not a term that's used. So honest, consensual, non-monogamy, right? And often, people who are um, in favor of polyamory will do so, will live in communities of others who also, you know, have similar views and live with their, their multiple uh, romantic partners. I don't know about you, but that sounds very complicated to me. Then um, obviously some people have chosen to live that way. Um, I bring this up because it has very much to do with the first commandment, polyamory. God's objection and command, there's always a positive, uh, you know, a, the, the negative positive way of expressing the commands, has to do with polyamory, but not in relationship with human beings, but in relationship with God. And we're going to dive into what is this first commandment tell us. And I kind of went into this a lot last week, but hear this again. I'm not going to go over everything, but the Ten Commandments are essentially relational guidelines. And we have a hard time understanding that, no matter how many times you hear that, because we think of laws and commands as almost arbitrary rules given to us by a distant authority figure. That's, no matter how many times you hear, Ten Commandments are given in relationship from God to the Israelites, we still think of them as arbitrary rules given by an impersonal authority. But they are, in the end, relational guidelines. Relational guidelines between God and man and relational guidelines between human beings. And so God created us to find fulfillment in God and also in relationship with one another. And sin has marred our relationship with God and people. And God gives us these commandments to direct us how we are to live in relationship with him and with one another. And it is sin that um, keeps us, mars us from relating healthily, properly to God and to one another. And again, the commandments are given in light of that. Um, we're going to be looking, you know, over the, the series, looking at the Ten Commandments in light of the biblical narrative, the arc of the biblical story, which you've heard before, creation, fall, redemption, 
and consummation. So how did God create us originally? What were the effects of the introduction of sin into the world through Adam and Eve? The work of God's redemption, chiefly through Jesus Christ. Um, And then his second coming, his return to consummate his kingdom, his work, right? We're going to look at it in that light. And what do I mean by that, right? So today we're looking at the first commandment, which is essentially worship God alone. And I'm going to suggest to you today that worship God alone points to a desire in us that God has given us from creation, and that is a desire to worship. We were created with a desire to worship, right? And let me just walk through the biblical story um, in this, with regards to this command, right? We were created originally in goodness, image bearers with a desire to worship. Sin was introduced into this world and we are now fallen creatures and our, our, our desire to worship is tainted and twisted. And, but we still, we're still image bearers. We have not lost that. And we still have a desire to worship, but it is twisted. So the fall has created that. Christ wants to redeem our twisted sense of worship. And that is what he came to do. And the end goal is that we would find in him the consummation of that desire to worship. So we're going to be looking at each commandment kind of through this grid of creation, fall, redemption, consummation. But again, this is kind of the... For this... uh, Commandment, the first commandment. We're going to be looking at this idea of worshiping God alone and how that points for us a desire to worship and how, as Hebrews 1, 1, 2 says, how Christ is meant to be the fulfillment of that desire. For that verse says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. It is now through Jesus Christ the Son that we are most clearly pointed to worship of God. And so again, we're going to be looking at each commandment in light of what is the pre-fall desire that God gave us, in this case desire to worship. What is the end time fulfillment in Christ that, we're, that we find described in scripture? Okay, so that's kind of the big picture that we're going to look at. So I'm just going to read the verse again and, um, in Exodus 20, verses 1, and 2, 1, 2, and 3. God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Again, I've just summarized it as worship God alone, that this is what the commandment teaches. Now, it's a very simple idea. Worship God alone. But this very simple commandment, simple idea, simple Desire, even you would say, is hotly contested in our culture today. And easily confused even by Christians who have heard this taught over and over again throughout their lives. And I would say it is the most important commandment, even though it doesn't, in some sense, get a lot of focus. How you understand the first commandment will affect how you view all the other commandments. If you can't agree with worship God alone, then your understanding of all the other commandments will also be affected. And so we're going to be asking some basic, just four basic questions today, okay? What is worship? Why worship? I can't write fast enough. Give you a chance to let it sink in, these questions. 
Why worship God? Lastly, why... All right, I'm just going to be fast there. Why worship God alone? Which, again, is the commandment given to us here in the first commandment. I'm going to do relatively quickly a definition for worship. Okay, I'm going to write this up as well, and then I'm probably pretty much done with writing. Worship is a loving response. Response. To God's work in our life. Through consecration and separation, which we will define later. I'm writing too big. Because he is worthy. Because he is worthy. Here's the definition of what is worship. A scriptural definition. Worship is a loving response to God's work in our life through consecration and separation because he is worthy. So I'm just going to quickly go through some texts here to kind of give some uh, backing for this definition. Okay? So worship is a loving response to God's work in our life. Romans 12, 1, chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So this text, we simply see, worship is a response to God's mercy. And that worship is a seeking of likeness to Christ, to conform ourselves into his likeness. Okay? We're going to move on to the next part. We worship through consecration and separation. Now, we're going to go to the Old Testament. The Old Testament really brings this out pretty clearly. So, in the Old Testament, we go to the book of Joshua, and it's really evident in the book of Joshua because Joshua has led the Israelites into the promised land, but in the land that was you know, full of beliefs of many other pagan gods. And so there was a call to faithfulness to God. And so uh, chapter 24, chapter 24, verses 14 and 15 say this, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites, the Amorites, the people in the promised land, in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Right? That last part is a well-known verse. You can go to a Christian bookstore and buy a plaque, a poster, a bracelet, Um, of that verse. And so again, the context for these words is the Israelites have entered into the promised land that God has given them, but they're entered a land where there's belief in many different pagan gods. And they've been delivered from Egypt, slavery under Egypt, also where there was belief in many pagan gods as well. And God's call to them, and he recognizes there is a choice for them to make, is worship God alone. Throw away your worship of these pagan gods. 
obviously that means that the Israelites were mixing their worship, syncretizing their worship. They were worshiping the Israelites, the, the God of the Bible, the God of Scripture, the Hebrew God, Yahweh, and yet also worshiping other pagan gods as well. And God says, um, be faithful to me, worship me alone. And we get this again, famous declaration from Joshua, but, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And really throughout the context of Joshua, we, we hear this repeated over and over again, that again, worship is a response to what the Lord has done. The Lord has delivered them from Egypt, brought them into the promised land. He has fought for them. And you have to remember, again, the, what we call the preamble in the Decalogue, right? I am the Lord your God who has delivered you from Egypt and out of slavery. God saves first and then asks for obedience. All other religions say, if you obey, then you will be rewarded, enlightened, saved, delivered, whatever that particular religion says. Christianity says, I already saved you. Now go and obey out of love. For me, I've already saved you. Now go and obey out of love for me. God, really, this is the main point today. God has set us free, so let's worship him alone. God has set us free, so let's worship him alone. Now, we were talking about uh, this, this point here, that worship is through consecration and separation. What does consecration mean? Another word for consecration is setting aside. We set aside ourselves, our lives, and all of our possessions and all that we have in service to God. We recognize that everything we have is from God. He is our creator. He is our provider. He is our redeemer. Everything we have is from God and we are to set aside everything that we are and everything we have in worship to God. Now, often when you hear the word worship, you think what we're doing here. Or you think of like some incredible worship experience, raising your hands and voices to God. Yes, that's worship. But scripture talks about whole life worship. And whole life worship is through consecration, setting aside yourself and all that you have to God's service and through separation, right? Again, think of the Old Testament context. Separation meaning separating from the gods, the beliefs of this world, which God would say of this world meaning things that are um, contrary to what God has taught, contrary to the way in which God originally designed for this world to be. Now, separating doesn't have to mean we're all going to be monks and live in a cave and just physically remove ourselves from this world. There are times, certainly in our life, where the right thing to do is to physically remove ourselves from a situation that will lead us to sin. But separating doesn't necessarily mean removing ourselves from this world. God calls us to engage in this world. He calls us to separate from, from sin, to separate from temptations, to separate from the underlying philosophies and narratives of this world that are counter and contrary to what God teaches. So separating means not being controlled by sin, not being controlled by sin, uh, philosophies and narratives that are counter to what God teaches. We see also, and this is just kind of maybe a, a good summary, that in Joshua we, we hear about worship as being holding fast to the Lord, which really is another way of saying depending on God, trusting in God, and worship as loving the Lord our God. 
and you'll even note the, the theme verse today on the cover is, Be careful to love the Lord. That's a verse in Joshua as well. So we see all these things, right, that, again, reinforced in this Joshua text. Worship is a response to what God has done. Worship is consecration and separation. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord, throwing away the gods of this world, the idols of this world. And then, again, to be summed up in language of holding fast to the Lord and loving the Lord our God. And the the last part of this definition is uh, we worship because he is worthy. Certainly this is something that is taught maybe in every book of scripture, but throughout, the, throughout scriptures this point is made. But we see this finding its clear apex in the book of Revelation. And in Revelation 5, 11 through 13, this picture is painted for us. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, under the earth and on the sea, and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise, honor, and glory, and power forever and ever. So we hear just in this, these three verses, this picture painted, angels, humans, creatures, everyone sings praise to God because he is worthy. So that was a quick... Uh, backing of this definition for what worship is. But let's ask this next question. Why, why worship? Why is it even important to talk about worship? And the simple answer is because we are created to. So even if you're an atheist, you can't escape it because God is the one who created all things and he has designed us with a desire to worship. And so even those who say they worship nothing will in the end worship Something, And we see this described in Romans 1.25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Living in a fallen world means we can choose between worshipping the creator or worshipping created things. And our fallen nature means that left to ourselves, we will choose to worship and serve created things without the work of the Spirit in our life. And sometimes that created thing is ourself. I mean, I know no one is, well, maybe not no one. I think it's probably pretty rare that anyone is bowing down to themselves saying, I am so great and worthy. But at the same time, it is very easy for us to place ourselves and our experience at the center of the universe to say, I will sit in judgment of what is true. I will sit in judgment of what is true rather than believe that there is a God who did create all things, who defines what reality is, who defines what morality is. Our modern, modern culture simply <laughs> doesn't like to submit to any authority or sit under specifically the truth of God in Scripture. Our culture today wants to stand over Scripture and judge it. And really, philosophically, what our culture is trying to do is deconstruct Scripture, which we can understand philosophically why that happens. 
And they want to deconstruct Scripture to find the truth that is hidden in Scripture. Believe that there is something good to be drawn from Scripture, but it's marred and tainted and hidden by human error in Scripture. So we've got to deconstruct Scripture to find what is the truth in it. But when we do that, we sit in judgment over Scripture. Right? Scripture says and self-proclaims, God does through Scripture, that Scripture is God-breathed without error. Now, imagine yourself as being the one in charge of deconstructing Scripture, which no one ever quite consciously thinks of it this way, but everyone subconsciously does it. Imagine you are in charge of deconstructing Scripture. What will you leave in about God and what will you take out? What will you leave in and what will you take out? What will you determine to be true description of who God is and what will you take out to say, that's not true. God can't be that way. There's got to be some mistake here. I'm going to change that. I'm going to ignore that. Which, again, is a very common thing to do because there are many difficult things in Scripture where you're like, God, I don't know why this is in here. I don't like this teaching. (laughs) I would rather take it out. I would rather remove it. Which is fine and good on some level, but then... If you do that, if your posture is to sit in judgment over Scripture, to deconstruct it, to believe in a God that you find acceptable and palatable, then what confidence do you have that you are worshiping the God who has revealed himself rather than just something that you made up? This is not about having just legitimate differences in interpretation of Scripture. This is about our posture in coming to God who reveals Himself in Scripture. Will we come with a posture saying, God, I recognize You are their creator. You are in control of all things. You have revealed Yourself through Scripture. And I will wrestle with Your revelation. There are some passages I really don't like, but I'm going to trust what you say that it is God-breathed and without error. I'm going to try to reconcile it rather than just say, let's cut out Matthew 26. We don't need that one. Right? To come into Scripture with that posture of, God, I worship you and I submit to you and I will wrestle with your revelation rather than worship ourselves in the sense of saying, we are judge over God and over his revelation. Let me give an illustration of this very common desire to make ourselves God over God. So marketing really plays on that completely. Marketing today promises not only the life that we want, but also the person we want to be. Marketing plays on our desire to worship ourselves, to define ourselves by our um, consumer goods, essentially, right? And I remember seeing an ad for the Honda Pilot a few years ago, and its, it's, its major word was this, just so you can see. Utility, right? It's an SUV, right? Utility. Utility, right? And the description, you know, the little um, ad copy said this, it's the new pilot with more functionality, more smarts, and more ready for anything spirit than any pilot we've ever built. Features like enhanced third row seating, standard class three trailer hitch, available rear view camera and DVD rear entertainment system help make you more useful. 
utility, right? Utility signifies your identity is in your purchase. Not only have you bought a very functional car, you have shown the world who you are. You have shown the world your identity. You are one with your car. What your car can do, you also can do. If your car is all-purpose, then you are all-purpose. You have more functionality. You have more smarts. You have more ready-than-anything spirit to take on the world, except for all the other people driving Honda Pilots and SUVs, right? Even when we don't believe in God or any God, we must place ultimate worth and value in something. And sometimes, I mean, it could be all kinds of things in our lives, but sometimes we put that ultimate value in ourselves. And marketing tells us over and over again that we should worship ourselves. We should make ourselves the thing most worthy and that our identity is found in our consumer good purchases. And the reason why this marketing ploy works is because we are created with a desire to worship and we can't escape it no matter how hard we try, no matter what we say we believe in. We may want to make ourselves God over God, but what is the price of doing that when we don't come to God with that posture of submission, of worship of Him who is worthy? So we've looked at why worship. Why worship? Because we're created to worship. So why worship God? Why worship God rather than anything else? Jeremiah 2, 23 to 25 says this. How can you say, I am not defiled? I have not run after the Baals, which is an, an idol. See how you behaved in the valley. Consider what you have done. You are a swift she-camel running here and there, a wild donkey accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind in her craving, in her heat. Who can restrain her? Any males that pursue her need not tire themselves. At mating time, they will find her. Do not run until your feet are bare and your throat is dry. But you said, it's no use. I love foreign gods and I must go after them. Simply to say, why worship God? Because scripture says, idolatry enslaves. When we worship created things, it enslaves us rather than God who promises to set us free. In this text, it's likened to an animal who's in, in heat and has no restraint or a love-addicted person who must find their mate. It is amazing when we begin to open our eyes to see how idols enslave, where we can see it come up again and again. Amber and I like to watch the show Top Chef. And if you watch Top Chef, you'll know a former contestant called Richard Blaze. Richard Blaze in his first season in Top Chef was just clearly a standout, right? Just amazing chef. He didn't win that season, but everyone was like, man, this guy's amazing. He's going to do great things. He came back on Top Chef All-Stars, right? Now with something to prove because he didn't win the first season. And he did win in, in, in his uh, Top Chef All-Star season. And now he comes back and he's often a judge on the show. It's amazing to hear him describe his relationship with his work. He's clearly super talented chef. And now because of Top Chef, he's opened all kinds of restaurants. He's well-known. He's on TV. But it, it didn't matter how much success or respect he got. 
he said on the show, on the, the, the all-star season, I hate everything I do, which is just mind-boggling. Like, dude, you're like super talented. Clearly, everyone respects you. Your fellow chefs respect you. Clearly, investors respect you. They're pouring money into your restaurants. Foodies love you. They come to your restaurants. He says, I hate everything I do. How is that possible? But we know it's possible because we can relate to that on some level. Maybe not so dramatically, but we can relate to the feeling of like, well, what I do is just never good enough. Well, people were just judging me for not being good enough. Right? I mean, that, that's just him. He, it didn't matter how much success he had. His idol was his work and his work enslaved him. It cannot deliver what it promised on. So we worship God alone because in the end, Scripture teaches, worshiping created things will enslave us, but worshiping God sets us free. So this brings us to the last question. Why worship God alone? Why worship God alone? In Matthew it says this, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. But literally, you could substitute anything else in place of money. You cannot serve both God and status, power, approval, success, control, Buddha, Allah, self. You cannot serve both God and some other thing, some other God. One of my professors, John Frame, said this. Okay, try to track with me. Surely if it is wrong to worship Baal, which I trust none of you have Baal idols that you're bowing down to in your home. Surely if it is wrong to worship Baal, it is also wrong to worship something that is even less than what Baal pretends to be. And yet, that is often what we do. People who would never dream of bowing down in an idol's temple put other things ahead of God in their lives. Here the temptation is much more subtle and the rationalizations are much more readily at hand. As much as we want to fight against it, worship in the end is through consecration and separation. We cannot worship both God and something else, whatever that something else is. We cannot do it because worship is setting aside ourselves and all that we have in service to God. Because, sep- because worship is separation. God says, and he says it in different places, in different ways. But Exodus 34, 14 says, Do not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. This verse always sits a bit weird. Why would we think of jealousy as like wrong? But think of like think of like your relationship with a significant other if you have one. Like if they started cheating on you or seeing someone else, your response of jealousy is the right response. That's what you were created for. You're supposed to be jealous. You're not supposed to be like, oh yeah, sure. You know, be married to three other people. It's all good. That doesn't bother me at all. And anyone who I've seen tells me that it doesn't bother me, I'm never convinced by it. And I mean, I try, I try to listen like, 
you really like are cool with it, it, it doesn't really seem like I've met people who are polyamorous. They don't really seem that happy about being polyamorous. I think, again, we were made for monogamy with God and monogamy in our significant other relationship, our marriage relationship. That's how we were created. And this idea of worshiping through consecration and separation is just something that has just been throughout Scripture. Not everyone agrees with this view, but I believe the creation accounts were structured in a way to say God is creator. Not all these other specific, uh, the sun or the moon or all the things that were created on specific days. It was an apologetic for the people to say, don't worship the sun or the moon. Don't worship the fish god. Don't worship any of those gods. God is the one who created those things. Why would you worship something that God created? Worship God instead. The plagues in Exodus that delivered the Israelites from Egypt. The plagues, again, were directed, not just God saying, what's some random stuff I could throw down on the Egyptians? He was specifically aiming at Egyptian gods that the Egyptians believed in. Oh, you think there's an Egyptian god of the gnats? Well, let me show you who's in control over the gnats. God says, I am the creator Worship God alone. All the others are false gods, are created things over my, you know, under my sovereignty. They will not bring life. And as we live in this world, we are convinced that those other things bring life. That surely God alone, as revealed in Scripture, cannot bring life. I need to add some Buddhism into it. I need to add some Hinduism into it. I need to add some American culture into it. And God says, no. Worship God alone. John Frame says this as well. Why is the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, so negative? The very notion of exclusive loyalty requires us to refuse rival loyalties. And there are rivals. Others who tempt us to abandon our covenant with God. God has made covenant uh, God has made covenant with us in a fallen world. So the negative focus reflects the reality of sin and temptation. Obedience to God in a fallen world always involves saying no to Satan, to the world, and our own lusts. You know, we could cast all of the... Well, the first commandment is actually a positive commandment, right? Worship God alone. It's not a do not commit adultery, do not murder. It's actually a positive statement. We could cast all of the Ten Commandments positively, you know. Instead of saying do not murder, you know, we could say, and I think properly to understand a commandment, seek all that brings life. That would be a positive way of defining the commandment do not murder. And it would be right and appropriate. And yet at the same time, there is a reason why God frames many of the commandments in a negative way because he wants to teach us we need to say no we need to say no to sin we need to say no to rival loyalties we need to say no to idols that tempt us and enslave us so here are just some reflection questions what are your idols 
and I, I've, I've asked this question before in a sermon, but I know I need, I need this sermon as much as anyone else. I need to ask myself again, what are idols in my life that are not bringing life and yet that I turn to again and again? What are things in your life that you trust more than God to bring you life to the full? What are things or people that you cherish more than God? What are the things that when threatened to be taken away that you get really angry? What are the ways that you have syncretized other faiths into your Christian faith? What are the subtle ways you have made American culture or whatever culture you come from more important than God's kingdom culture? It's a question we need to ask in our time today. We have always, since the fall, been tempted to worship created things or syncretize our Christian faith, our worship of God with other cultural or religious beliefs. We are tempted to being polyamorous in our relationship with God. We are tempted to believe God is not enough. That we have to find a way ourselves to find the fulfillment that we seek. But I want to end with just this, to point us to this redemption fulfillment that we find in Jesus. Hear the words, and they're going to be familiar texts Jesus has promised to you. The words of Jesus on worshiping him, who is the fulfillment of our desire to worship. John 10.10, I've come so that they may have life and have it to the full. John 4, 22 to 24. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. And I want you to hear this because it's so important because we keep thinking God is so distant. God is knowable. God is personal. Anyone can worship God anywhere through Jesus. Jesus says, and we sang this in the beginning of our service, Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Remember this. Imagine the imagery of a yoke. You can't be yoked to more than one other thing. You're going to get pulled all over the place. And Jesus says, be yoked to me. I will carry the weight. John 8, 31, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Worshiping Jesus leads to life to the full. Worship in spirit and in truth brings us rest, brings us freedom. In the end, don't we all long for that? Idols enslave, but Jesus fulfills our deepest desire for worship. A worship that brings, again, truth and spirit and freedom and rest and life to the full. This quote is tremendously um, popular, but often it gets truncated. Blaise Pascal said this, There's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God, the Creator, made known through Jesus. You could say that's 
pretty good summary of the sermon. I mean, that's what we just talked about. Jesus has paid the price for all the ways in which we fall short of obeying the first commandment, worship God alone. No more do our sins or the ways we fall short in fulfilling this commandment, no more is it held against us. Our sins are forgiven. We are set free from the weight of that guilt and that burden. But not only that, Jesus is the fulfillment of all that this commandment requires. Jesus has been completely and exclusively loyal to his Father in heaven. Never did he sway or yoke himself to something else or, or, or think that something else has greater worth or value than God himself. And that righteousness that he lived out on earth, he says, that's the righteousness I see in you. I now see in you through Jesus a perfect, exclusive loyalty to God. No matter how we felt like we've been polyamorous and betrayed our faithfulness to God, God sees us with Jesus' exclusive, perfect loyalty. And, and so we are pointed again and again that Jesus, as it says in that Hebrews text, is the only one worthy of our worship, the only object worthy of our worship. We may be tempted by all these other rival loyalties in this life, but in the end, only Jesus will fulfill us. Let's pray.